Welcome to the Beacon Church Podcast. Each week we post a sermon from our last Sunday service so you can catch up, review, or share with your friends. We pray as you listen to this week's episode, you're encouraged and equipped to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. So I have a friend who moved out to California about a year or so ago, and he's moved to the Bay Area, and he's living in a new home, a new community, and he needs to make new friends. And so he happens to be involved in martial arts, and he joined a gym or dojo or whatever you call it there, and he started to make friends with some of these other guys and started getting close and, you know, hanging out more and more with them, both, like, in the dojo and outside and stuff. And after uh, some time had passed, one of the the new friends that he had made had started telling him about one of the other friends in the group. And he, he pointed out that this other friend just happened to be the son of Robin Williams, like the actor, the late actor uh, and comedian. And so my friend was like, is that true? And he looked it up and sure enough, like he'd spent you know, months becoming friends with Robin Williams' son. And he's like, that's cool. And then he kind of you know, wanted to like pull it back and you just, you know, cause you don't want to be that guy, you know, you don't want to be that guy. You want to treat him like a normal human being and all of that, you want to play it cool. But of course, you kind of can't like play it that cool. Like you can't look at them the same again when you realize like they grew up with Mrs. Doubtfire in their house, right? Like there's even though he wants to treat them the same, he can't. He like he's forced to think about him differently because now he knows he's he's the son of a VIP. And we're in this series called Supernatural Power for Everyday People. And we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians. And this book is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And throughout this letter, he keeps reminding them, the church, you guys, you're the VIPs. You guys are, are the children of the famous one. He keeps reminding you that you are something more than you used to be, that you are no longer mere humans, that you are these, we're this renewed humanity. And he keeps trying to drive this home because he's saying, if you knew who you were, if you could understand who you were in Christ, it would change the way you thought about yourself. You wouldn't even be able to help it. You could not think about yourself the same way. You could not think about anything you do the same way. And over the course of this letter, he takes this reality and applies it to increasingly more and more situations of everyday life, saying, if if you knew who you were, it's going to change how you do this and how you do this and how you do this. And today, we're going to be looking at a passage where Paul applies this to our sexuality. Yeah! Who's excited for the sex talk? You didn't know. You didn't know. We said we don't announce it because... You wouldn't come. Uh, <laughs> but, but there's some really good stuff in here. And Paul, let me just, you know, I'll skip to the end. Uh, spoiler alert. He's going to say, flee from sexual immorality and honor God with your bodies. Uh, like, that's the takeaway. In case you're wondering, this is where he's going. But what I love about Paul and, and the Holy Spirit, who's writing this, is that he understands that this is, this is a complicated issue. There's, there's nuance and, and lives and feelings and emotions and things that go into how we view ourselves and our bodies. So he doesn't just say, flee from sexual immorality and honor God with your bodies and leave it at that. No, he, he goes in a little bit deeper and he understands, is this awareness that the way the Corinthians are living and treating their bodies and viewing their sexuality is built on basic assumptions that they have about themselves and their bodies and the world and how it all works. So rather than just coming in and say, flee from sexual immorality and honor God with your bodies, what Paul does is he, he, uh, he goes after the assumptions that the Corinthians have. 
these false assumptions, and he starts to dismantle these assumptions. And I'm excited to be able to work through this passage, even though it's a difficult topic. I'm excited to work through it because I think the assumptions that Paul is tackling that the Corinthians had 2,000 years ago are very similar to some of the assumptions that we have today, both inside and outside the church in our day and age. And I think what he has to say to dismantle those assumptions can actually be, be encouraging and, and directive for us in our lives as we try to flee sexual immorality and try to understand why it's so important to honor God with our bodies. And so he starts off this section and he says, I have the right to do anything, you say. This is kind of like a, a saying in, his, uh, in the church in Corinth. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. And there's, there's two assumptions that are being made here. The first is that I'm free to do what I want. I have the right to do anything. I'm, I'm free. I have this autonomy that I get to just do what I want. And then there's a second one, that sex is just a bodily appetite. It's merely a bodily appetite. And Paul's going to go after these and, and dismantle them a little bit. And I'm actually going to start with the second one. We're going to talk about the second one first. Sex is just a bodily appetite. Because Paul responds to this immediately by saying, well, actually, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, right? And the Lord for the body. So in Corinth, they had this, this understanding that sex was like food, you know? You get hungry, you eat food, you get horny, you get some. Uh, and so that was kind of the, the mindset that they had. It's just, you know, let's, let's itch that or scratch that itch because it's just a, a bodily appetite. And he's saying, well, it's not, it's not a one-to-one parallel with food here because the body isn't meant for sexual immorality any more than the, the stomach is meant for, for rat poisoning. Like if you're hungry and I come with a plate of rat poisoning, hold it before you, sure, you can scarf it down. It might even satisfy your hunger for a moment, but it's going to wreak havoc on your life. And so he's saying, yes, we do have these appetites, but, but it's not for sexual immorality. That's like poison for our, our souls, for our bodies. And he draws out this distinction that yeah, there's an appetite there, but it's not, it's not for sexual immorality. There is a kind of sex that is good and it's God-ordained and it's beautiful. And, and the reason that God, the reason that God cares so much about our sex lives isn't because he's like, he, he thinks sex is dirty or wrong. It's because sex is so precious. It's something so good. He's trying to protect something that's precious and good. Paul's saying, well, no, no, it's not just an appetite. It's not just like food that, you know, you can just find whatever is going to satisfy that hunger and it's going to be okay. But there's another layer to this. He says, food is for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. So there was this, this understanding in Corinth that the body was not that significant. The body was like kind of secondary. It's just God's going to destroy it one day. You know, the Stoics especially kind of believe this, that anything that happens in the body isn't really that important. What really matters is, is the mind or the spirit or the soul. You know, what really matters is, is our intentions and the motives of our heart. And what we do in our body isn't really that significant because it's just, you know, it's just the body. And Paul, he is going to go to great lengths to show us 
This could not be further from the truth. Not for the Christian, not for the new human, not for the the children of the famous one, that our bodies, they really do matter, that our, our bodies aren't secondary. And he starts by reminding them about Jesus. He says, by his power, God raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. And what he's saying here, what he's reminding them of is that God raised Jesus, the son of God, from the dead because Jesus took on a human body. And he wore that human body through his life. He wore it on the cross. He brought it to the grave. And then God raised him from the dead, still in that body, and that Jesus still is in a a human body. Like, the incarnation never ended. I don't know if you knew this, but Jesus didn't, like, cast off his human body when he ascended to heaven. Jesus is still wearing a human body. And that should matter for us. I don't know if you guys, uh, anybody remember Janko Jeans? If you were born between, like, 1978 and maybe 1984, uh, you might recognize (laughs) Janko Jeans. And they're that ridiculous. Like, there's no redeeming quality for pants like this. Uh, I mean, I had pants that, that the waist, the waist was actually smaller than the bottom of the leg, and, uh, and it looks ridiculous. Everybody knows it looks ridiculous, and yet when I was in seventh grade, I wanted nothing more than a pair of Janko jeans. Why? Because when I was in seventh grade, all of the eighth graders, all the cool eighth graders had Janko jeans. So it didn't matter what I thought about it, because they, they liked it, and they were wearing it. I was like, I want that, right? See, when, when we see Jesus wearing a human body, that should catch our attention and be like, wait a second. All right, I don't know what you think about your body or human bodies in general, and maybe you think they're lesser or they're insignificant or whatever, or that maybe the human body is beneath you and all you really focus on is like the mind and, and the intentions of the heart and all of that. And if you think your body is beneath you, it's not beneath Jesus. He actually saw the human body as something so valuable that he would inhabit a human body, not just for the 33 years he walked the face of the earth, but for eternity. He's not letting go of that human body. That, that matters. We should see that and recognize, man, all right, there's value to the human body here. We can't just dismiss it. Now, of course, our bodies aren't great, right? They're worn and tattered and they're sagging in places where they didn't used to and they hurt and all of that stuff. Uh, but then Paul continues this and he says, he will raise us also. And he reminds them, not only did Jesus wear a body, so that should catch our attention, but you are also going to get a new resurrected body. And in, in kind of the Greco-Roman world, they believed that the body was insignificant. They believed that we were going to be freed from the body. That was the hope of the afterlife, is that we'd be freed from the body and we'd just kind of be these ethereal spirits in this mix and we just kind of live as spirits. And that is not the Christian hope. It has never been the Christian hope. The Christian hope has always been that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to give you a new resurrected body. That you aren't, you know, and we can think this way. We can think that I'm a soul that has a body. But that's not what the scriptures tell us. We are embodied souls. Your body is as much a part of you as your soul. And there will be a time where we will be disembodied souls for a brief period of time until Jesus comes again. But we will be incomplete because our bodies are a significant part of who we are. And so we we shouldn't trivialize them and think that they're insignificant or they're lesser than the the mind or the heart or the will or the intentions. Our bodies matter. But then he pushes even farther. He says, don't you know that your bodies, all right, your physical bodies he's talking about, your bodies are members of Christ himself. 
members of Christ himself. So that, you know, we talk about we're the body of Christ and we, we can over-spiritualize these things and think it's only about like us in spirit being kind of the body of Christ. He's saying your physical bodies comprise the body of Christ. That your bodies your, are, are the members of Christ himself. And he says, shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? And so he's talking about how when we come together sexually with someone else, that we're uniting ourselves with them. And he's saying, you're going to take the members of Christ's body and unite them with a prostitute? It's said that the two will become one flesh, but whosoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. And so there's this union between not just our spirits, but also our bodies with Christ. So that your body is no longer just your body. It also belongs to him. And we talk about this in, in when we serve, right? We talk about how we're the hands and feet of Christ, right? And my hands get to be the hands of Jesus when I serve the poor and when I care for people and my feet get to be the feet of Christ when I go out on mission or I go and do stuff to, to care for people. But it's not just our hands and our feet. It's our, our butts and our boobs and our bits as well, he's saying, are all part of the body of Christ. Like, you can't just chop off your hands and say, all right, Jesus, you got my hands and feet, but everything here is off limits. No, no, no. He's saying your whole body is members of Christ's body. So think of that next time, you know, you're sitting at the computer late at night and you're scrolling through certain websites and, you know, that you're actually taking Christ's body parts, all right? These are now Jesus' body parts are engaging whatever's happening in front of that computer screen. And think about this when you invite your girlfriend or your boyfriend into the, your room or whatever and, you know, you, you start grinding against each other. You're grinding Jesus' body parts, not just yours. Have fun with that image. <laughs> All right, because that's what, that's what Paul is telling us here is that these parts of our bodies, like these also physically, our physical bodies belong to him. And then he pushes it even further as if that's not enough. He says, don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit lives in your physical body? This, again, isn't just a spiritual thing that he just dwells in my heart and my emotions and my mind. He is like physically in our bodies. Uh, about a year and a half ago, Robert took one of our old pew Bibles. They look like this, and they're worn and tattered and kind of falling apart. And for a sermon illustration, he started to cut it up on a Sunday, like, like a real Bible. And people were shocked. People were like, wait, no, 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 that's not a real Bible. It just has a Bible cover on it. No way would he cut up a real Bible. I'm here to tell you, he cut up a real Bible. Can you believe that? The gall? Uh, and, and of course, people were really uncomfortable with that because we know, all right, we believe that the, the words in this book, the words in this book are written by the Holy Spirit. We believe that this is the inspired word of God. And so this book contains the words of the Spirit of God. And so doing something to defame or, or, or uh, you know, in any way uh, hurt this book, it feels like it, it's sacrilegious. Why would we do something like that? And Paul is saying, you think, that's, you think that's special? You think this book is sacred because it contains the words of the Holy Spirit? You don't have the words. You have the Holy Spirit himself living in your body. So where you go with your body, the Holy Spirit is going with you. And if you wouldn't do it to the Bible, you shouldn't do it to your body, 
right? So the next time you say, oh, it's not that big of a deal, you know, it's just, it's normal, it's part of the industry, you know, take the clients out and, you know, we're just going to go to the strip club. What I want you to do, I want you to take a Bible and I want you to just, you know, rip out pages of the Bible and fold them up and start putting them in her thong. Uh, because if you're comfortable doing that, that is, that is nothing, that is nothing compared to the very fact that we bring our bodies into this. Because this book this book is not nearly as sacred as your body because you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your bodies matter. So when he says, honor God with your bodies, he's saying, this, this matters because Jesus wore a body. You're gonna have a body for all of eternity. Your bodies are significant and they're members of Christ and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. So, so we should be cautious. That's the, the first assumption. But then we go on to the second assumption, or the, the first taking them out of order. Uh, I'm free to do what I want. They said, I have the right to do anything. I have the right to do anything. And of course, I mean, we're Americans. We're all about our rights, right? And I'm sure over the last year, you've heard people talk about their rights to this and their rights to that and how dare they tell me what I need to do with this and that. And you know, we love to talk about our rights. And, and sure, this might apply in uh, some ways to that, but I don't want to focus on that because the, the commentators, when they talk about this this sort of slogan, they say it's just as likely that it's not a Corinthian slogan that's coming into the church, like from the outside world, that this is them taking the teaching of Paul and twisting it. Taking Paul's teaching that we are free in Christ and taking it to a a place where it wasn't meant to go, right? And so Paul, he responds that, sure, you you might have the right to do anything. Not everything is beneficial, (laughs) Right? Like, sure, you could do, do whatever you want, but that doesn't mean everything is okay. Like, be, be reminded, like, just because you're freed from the law doesn't mean that we're free from any sort of moral obligations. Of course, the Old Testament laws that were given to the people of Israel, they had a lot of, like, weird stuff in there. I'll, I'll admit that. Uh, and a lot of it had to do with, like, the temple and the sacrifices. And we are told that a lot of that stuff, like the temple, the sacrifices, all, a lot of those ceremonial cleansing things, all, a lot of that stuff was fulfilled in Jesus. He was the real sacrifice for the sins of the world. So all those other things were just shadows, right? They weren't the real thing. They were shadows pointing ahead to something else, that Jesus was the fulfillment of these things. And so if Jesus already fulfilled these things, we don't need them anymore. We're freed from the Old Testament law. But the question becomes, where do we draw the line? Like, what, what are we freed from? Are we freed from the whole of the Old Testament law? Because there's certain parts of the Old Testament law that reflect God's moral values. So nobody who says, hey, I'm free from the law, says, that means I get to steal and murder, because those are part of the Old Covenant. Right? Nobody would say that, I would expect. Most people wouldn't say, I'm free to go steal and murder and kind of do these other things. Because you recognize that those particular laws reflect God's transcendent moral values. So the question becomes, which laws reflect God's transcendent moral values and which laws were just part of the old covenant? It's a really good question, and if you've wrestled with that and you've said, I don't know, I feel like maybe the sexual restrictions of the Old Testament, that's Old Covenant, and it's, you know, it's so restrictive and it feels, feels so old-fashioned, that must be part of the Old Covenant. If you've asked that question, you're in good company. There's, there's a legitimacy to the question. That question was asked pretty early on by the church. Not right away, because if you, you're probably familiar, Jesus was Jewish. All of Jesus' first followers 
also Jewish. His like immediate disciples. Jesus really never left Palestine. So he only ever talked to Jewish people living in a very small part of the world. And for a long time, like when Jesus would talk about things like sexual immorality, Jesus never defined sexual immorality. He never went through and said, well, this constitutes sexual immorality and this and this and this. He did give us a picture of godly sexuality. He did affirm the the Old Testament teaching about marriage, that it's between a man and a woman, and it's this binding covenant relationship, and that sex should only happen there. But he didn't go through and like talk about bestiality or incest and talk about these issues because his audience, they, they had the same shared definition of sexual immorality. And all of the first followers of Jesus shared that until the message of the gospel started going to the Gentiles and non-Jews. And all of a sudden, the gospel is going into places where they don't have a shared definition of morality to bounce off, you know, to go back to. And so the question comes up, wait a second, we know that Jesus brought freedom, but where does that freedom apply? And there's this account in Acts 15 where they come and they they actually come together to ask this question. What what still applies from the old covenant to the Gentile people? And not just to the Jews, but to anybody who calls themselves a follower of Jesus. They ask this question, and I I love this. When that question gets asked, it says that there were a, a group of believers, Christians, who used to be Pharisees, all right, and now they're Christians, and they immediately jumped in and said, we got to get them all circumcised and they need to obey the whole old covenant of Moses. Like, whoa. <laughs> they jumped on that real fast, right? You can, you can take the guy out of Phariseeism, but I guess you can't take the Pharisee out of the guy. I don't know. Uh, there's a little bit of that Pharisaical tendency that they just wanted to jump in and be like, no, 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 you need to you know, do all these things. And, and I'm just going to tell you, I can relate to that. Because when I hear these things kind of questioned and challenged, my immediate reaction is I want to jump in and be like, no, 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 but the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. Look what Peter does, though. It says, after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. You see that after much discussion, this is Peter acknowledging that there's something to this question and we shouldn't just rush past it and ignore it. We shouldn't just jump on them and say, no, this is is the law, this is the law. But they discussed it. And here's Peter and the other apostles and leaders of the church, the people, the the men and women who actually sat at the feet of Jesus for three years, the people who knew Jesus better than anyone else in the world. Everything that you know about Jesus, you learned from them, all right? So if you think you know Jesus, they knew him better. You only know what they knew about Jesus, and they knew so much more. And so they discussed it, and after they discussed it, Honoring the people that are asking these, knowing that these are complex issues, knowing that lives are at stake, knowing that souls are at stake, they discussed it and they came back and they said, abstain from food polluted by idols and flee from sexual immorality. Food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality. They say these are the things that we need to carry over from the old covenant because these things are actually addressing God's transcendent moral values, not just unique things for unique people at a unique time in history. And then they say nothing more about sexual immorality in this passage. And that's, that's important because they do nothing to define sexual immorality when they're talking about it. They do nothing to say, well, this constitutes it, this doesn't. And you know why? It's because they didn't have to. 
because this is a group of Jewish men and women gathered together who had a shared understanding of what sexual immorality meant. So they didn't need to go through and say, well, this is this and you know, create a list because they already had a list. They'd been working off the same list for years. And so what they're doing in this moment is they are, are affirming that the laws about sexuality in the Old Testament apply fully to the New Testament, the New Covenant people, because they reflect God's transcendent moral values, not just a unique set of rules for a particular people at a particular place in a particular time. Does that make sense? And the, the reason I, I bring this up and spend so much time on it is because, of course, there are different opinions today in the world, obviously, but they're also starting to, to filter into the church about not everything, but about specific things, particularly homosexuality. And I know that all of you are just like, yes, this is exactly what I wanted to talk about today. Uh, and please, uh, uh, I want to just be gentle as I can. But sometimes people say, well, the, the biblical teaching about homosexuality, that was Old Covenant stuff, and what's talked about in the New Testament doesn't really apply because Jesus didn't talk about it. And, and it, it it really doesn't hold weight. In fact, even you know, new, even New Testament, Old Testament scholars who agree, or they they affirm that homosexuality is okay. Even the ones that affirm homosexuality is okay, they agree. They agree, as Dan Ovia says, the biblical text that deals specifically with homosexual practice condemn it unconditionally. All right, and so, you know, you can go out there and you can read an article or blog and anybody can say anything, but real, real, like, biblical scholars, even the ones that want to say that homosexuality is okay, which Dan Ovia is one of them, like, he, he believes homosexuality is okay, but he agrees you can't get there from the Bible, and he says you just have to, at that point, say, I, I think the Bible's wrong on this. And so there really isn't a, a, an argument from Scripture to say, oh, homosexuality is, uh, you know, it's okay. And, and I was actually even talking to somebody a few weeks ago, and they said, well, wasn't the, the homosexuality in the Bible, uh, you know, back in that day very different than what we experience today? And, and it's a nice thought. It just has no merit uh, to the argument. And, uh, you know, some people say, well, what, what he was really talking about, and, and even right in this passage, like earlier in chapter six, Paul speaks specifically about men having sex with men. And in Romans one, it talks about women having sex with women. And it, it uses kind of all these different, you know, ways of describing homosexuality. And every time it says, these are not part of God's plan. And some will say, well, there's a practice called uh, um, Pedit, oh my goodness, I just like blanked on pedestry, sorry. Pedestry in the, old, uh, in the Greco-Roman world where older men would take advantage of younger men. It was kind of more of an abusive thing. And they say, well, that's what Paul is referring to. The only thing is that they had a word for that. Like if that's what Paul was talking about, he would have said pedestry, but he, he doesn't. He talks about homosexuality. And some say, well, you know, it's different today because we have monogamous relationships, long-term loving relationships that, that didn't happen back then, but that also just doesn't hold any, it's just not historically true. And there's plenty of source documents from the Greco-Roman world talking about uh, homosexual relationships that were monogamous, loving, lifelong relationships, and Paul is speaking to all of that as well. And I know that this sounds very callous, and I, I don't want it to be, uh, what I, I do want you to know is that if you are going to subscribe to the scripture as the authority, you can't get from the Bible to homosexuality is okay in God's view. 
you can say that I think the Bible's wrong, and that's your prerogative, but you can't get it from the Bible. And if you are leaning in that direction of saying, I believe the Bible's wrong, I just want, to, I want you to consider a couple of things. All right? And I, I know if that's your view, I'm not going to convince you to change your mind in you know, a, a couple of moments. But a couple of things that I would love for you to at least, at least consider. And the first is this, that if you want to condone homosexuality, I imagine, I imagine it's coming from a place of compassion and empathy and love. That there are people in your life that you probably know personally that you have compassion for. And I, I have those people too that are struggling with same-sex attraction and you want them to have the fullness of the sexual experience, all of that, and so there's this compassion. Or maybe it's not even about a specific person or people, but just the idea of people in general, your, your heart breaks for them. There's this empathy and this love and this compassion and this empathy that you feel is good, but that love and compassion and empathy that you feel, that didn't come from nowhere. Like, it, it came from somewhere. And that, those values, those moral values of love and compassion and, and acceptance and, and unity, all of those things that we, we hold so dear in our society, those aren't universally held by every society ever. These are things that are pretty specific, especially to the Western world. You know, Europe and, and America, this isn't shared universally. But these Western cultures that have these high values of compassion and empathy and love for all people, they got it from somewhere. And historians have traced this out. They got it from Jesus. And so if you value compassion and empathy and, and even fighting for the marginalized people of society, and if that's what's kind of drawing you to make this decision that we need to allow any uh, sexual preferences kind of be as they are, if that's what's driving you, I want you to know that that compassion, that empathy, that came from Jesus. Like, that's not opinion. Like, that's historical fact. And I'm not saying that Christians have, like, been awesome at showing this throughout history. That's not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is historically, and people have traced it back, not just Christians, but even secular historians trace it back, and they recognize that, that those values came from Jesus, and they came from the Apostle Paul, and they came from the Apostle John. Before you want to dismiss their teaching about sexuality, I want you to know that your compassion and empathy that you find so valuable came from them as well. And that if you want to just love everyone always... If you feel that in your bones, to know that came from Jesus. He was uncompromising in his discussion of sexuality and sexual, sexual orthodoxy. And if you feel like, you know, you want to support equal rights for everybody, that idea came from the Apostle Paul who said there is neither slave nor free or Jew nor Gentile or male nor female. In Christ, we are one Right? These ideas, they, they started someplace and they started with people like the Apostle Paul who still, who still was uncompromising in his discussion about sexuality. And if you feel like God is love and that's kind of what's driving this, you're like, God is love and God would never do this. The same, you didn't come up with God as love. Like our society didn't come up with God as love. That isn't something that we just evolved to. You got the idea of God is love from John because John spent three years watching Jesus and he watched Jesus go to the cross for you and raise again. And he watched this all happen and he said, oh my goodness, God is love. 
and he wrote it down in a book. And that, that phrase has been echoing for 2,000 years and it's shaped a society to say, God is love. And we take that for granted, but that started with John, the same John who in Revelation was uncompromising in his discussion of, of sexuality. And so I, if, if you, you're coming from that place of compassion and empathy, I just want you to know there is a possibility to maintain the compassion and empathy and the love for people and hold to a traditional view of sexuality. Because the, the very foundation that we stand on for these, these values, the people who, who started this for us, were able to hold both of those things simultaneously. And one other consideration is, uh, all of us, our, our moral compass is not created in a vacuum. Uh, and it's certainly not just imputed on us from above. We are, we are culturally shaped, culturally formed, right? And again, this isn't, just opinion, we've observed, the anthropologists observe this over and over and over again, that our moral values, the things that we feel are natural, the things that like, not just that we think are good and evil, but the things that we feel like in our bones, like this is right, this is wrong. These things are, are, are culturally mediated. And of course, every society and every culture ever has disagreed at some point. Like we agree about a lot of stuff, but we disagree at points, right? And, and isn't it reasonable to assume that if God is real and he exists outside of us, like he's not just a product of our imagination, if he's real, then at some point, God's transcendent moral values will feel off to us with our culturally mediated, culturally formed, culturally shaped values. Like, isn't it reasonable to not just think that it might happen, but to expect that it will happen? Wouldn't it be, like, awfully convenient if God's transcendent moral values just happened to feel right with me on every issue ever? Knowing that even, like, you and me won't agree on everything ever, but me and God will? Like, shouldn't we expect that somewhere along the way God is going to say something that might feel wrong, but he's God, and he sees things with clarity that we don't? And his values transcend our values. And, and we are going to brush up against that. And we, we do get the choice to submit, to recognize that not, not everything is beneficial, whether or not we could see this or not. And this is one of the things that's so tricky, is we feel like if we can't see how something is harmful, we feel like, well, then it must be okay. And God says, well, you don't, you don't really need to see what the fruit does. But if you eat it, you're going to die. We, we trust in him. This is first, uh, Paul's first response to the assumption that I have the right to do anything, but he has this, this other response. I have the right to do everything, but I will not be mastered by anything. And he says, I have the, you, sure, you do whatever you want. Jesus has set you free, yes, but he hasn't set you free just so you can go be enslaved by something else. And I can tell you from experience that sexual desire is a terrible master. And when it cuts into that place of mastery, like, not just a boss. A boss has limits. A master has no limits. A slave driver knows no limits. A slave driver will push you to do things that you, you just don't, you don't even want to do. And I've been there. I've been enslaved by my own sexual desires in the past. And I have lied to the people that I love. And I've crossed lines. And I've done things. And I've hurt people. All because not because I wanted to, but because I was being mastered by something. And for some of you, you're in that place and you feel like, I don't want to be mastered by this anymore. And I just want to remind you that you have the Holy Spirit in you and you have a community of people around you who love you. 
And you don't need to hide in the shadows. You come, talk to me, talk to Robert, talk to one of the care pastors, talk to somebody in your small group that, that you can experience freedom from slavery. And I, I, I know that because I've experienced that freedom from slavery. I'm not saying freedom from temptation, but freedom from it mastering your life. Like that is possible. But there's another way that sexuality can become a master because a slave driver doesn't just get to decide what you do. They get to determine who you are. And when something is a master over us, it gets to say who we are. And in our society, I think we've let sex and sexuality and sexual desire become a master because we've said, whatever my sexual desires are, well, they get to define who I am. And we actually derive our identity. When we say that somebody has you know, misplaced sexual desires, people feel attacked, like their identity is being attacked, the core of who they are. Because at some point we said, you know, I am going to let my sexual desire become my master. And even if you don't do that for yourself, we are letting sexual desire become the master, even if we allow that to happen to other people and we kind of affirm that. And Paul's saying, no, 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 I'm not going to be mastered by anything. I've been set free to experience freedom in Christ. And lastly, he closes out and says, you are not your home. This is his last response to this, uh, this assumption that I am free, saying, no, 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 you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And so, wait, wait a second, we're not, we're not free? I thought we were being set free. And yes, we have. We've been bought at a price. We're not free. And the picture here, I don't think Paul is saying you've gone from being a slave to sin to being a slave to Jesus, right? That's not the picture. When he talks about you not being your own, he's not saying that you're Jesus' slave. The reason I say that is in a few verses, Jesus, or Paul's going to talk about marriage. He's going to say to husbands, hey, husbands, your bodies are not your own. They belong to your wives now. And he says to wives, your bodies are not your own. They belong to your husbands now. That there's this, this joint ownership of your bodies that happens in marriage. And so the picture that Paul is pointing us toward isn't the picture of going from one slave master to another. He's painting this picture of going from slavery to marriage, it's, it's not the picture of slavery, it's the picture of Hosea. And I don't know if you know about the prophet Hosea, but in the Old Testament, God called this prophet Hosea and he said, Hosea, I want you to go, go marry a prostitute. Very strange thing for a, a prophet to have to go do. So he goes and he marries a prostitute, has kids with her, and uh, in a short time, she goes back to her old tricks. And God said, man, this is, this is what it feels like to be me. <laughs> this is what it feels like to be me. My people, they, I call them in and they just they keep wanting to go back into that world. And God comes to Hosea and he says, Hosea, I want you to get your bride back. So Hosea goes. But now Hosea can't just go and say, hey, Gomer, that was his wife's name, Gomer. He has to say, Gomer, I forgive you, welcome you back. Because at this point, her decisions have, have rendered her a slave to another man. She's no longer free. And Hosea goes in and he purchases back his bride. He takes his silver and his barley and he says, I'm going to purchase you back. I'm not just going to forgive you and welcome you back. I'm going to pay for what's keeping you away from me. And God said, this is what I'm going to do. I love my people and I know they keep wanting to go their own way and go back into slavery, but I'm going to come and I'm going to purchase my bride and not with silver and barley. I'm going to purchase my bride with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. 
And when Paul says, you're not your own, you're bought at a price, honor God with your bodies, this isn't, this isn't a command saying, hey, get your act together. This is an invitation saying, he purchased you back because he loves you and he's willing to do anything to restore that relationship. And this is an invitation. This is, this is a wedding proposal. He's saying, come, I want you to be mine. But you can't be married and be free. Like, I'm not free to go sleep around with who I, I want. Like, I have a very, my sex life is, is, there's narrowness to it. Like, I get to sleep with one woman when she's okay with that. Like, yeah. So it's like, I, you know, like being married doesn't mean freedom. But I would choose that any day of the week for the relationship that I have with my wife. And this invitation, he's saying, yes, it's going to be costly. Yes, there will be restrictions. Yes, it will be uncomfortable. And it will be harder for some than others. And I, I admit that. It will be harder for some than others. But he's saying, do you think it's worth it? to be brought into this mystical union with a husband who would purchase his bride to make her free. And that is our decision. And for, for 2,000 years, countless Christians have made the decision, it's worth it. I'm going to restrain. I'm going to live with the restrictions because I want this union with this groom, and this is the story of Vaughn. I'm a Christian because I believe it to be true. I believe the claims of Jesus Christ to be real. So I really think he is God. I really think he, he loves me. I really think he died for me, that I can be right with God. I really think he's alive today and can be known. And those truths are life transforming, that they, they're real and they make a difference to daily life. So although the Christian life is sometimes hard, I'm never doing it on my own. I believe God is there with me. And uh, I know there's a wonderful future to look forward to and a great power to enjoy and experience, a great relationship to enjoy and experience. And that's what keeps me going, the Christian life. I think language in this whole area is, is complex because different people mean different things by being gay. Some just simply mean they're same-sex attracted, and that is me. I don't choose to use the language of being gay because I think that, for many people, implies an identity. And I don't regard this as my identity. It's just part of my experience of life. But my fundamental identity is as a Christian. That's who I am. And that determines how I want to live my life. And so I just choose to say something like I experience same-sex attraction rather than saying I'm gay, which sounds as a bit like I'm embracing an identity, which I'm not. Christians and the church in general, I would say, have actually been responded really well to my admission acknowledgement of same-sex attraction, I would say no one's reacted really badly. Occasionally there's been a lack of understanding, but to, to my surprise actually, it's been almost universally positive, although I expected that largely. I think people are aware that we're all broken people. I've not felt that I've been particularly condemned for this particular form of brokenness. I've been loved and affirmed. It's been really good. I sometimes talk about brokenness in this area because the world is not as it should be. None of us are born without some impact from the fact that human beings have turned away from God. And that affects life, the whole of life. It affects every aspect of our personalities. So we're, we've all got different things that are not quite right. I would say that God's teaching about sex is 
both marvellous and challenging for everyone. I don't think it's just for those who are attracted to the same sex that it's hard to live by the Bible's instructions. It's hard for everyone. And the Bible's standard is very strong. And so even those who get married and are attracted only to, to women will be attracted to other women or other men having got married. So it's hard for everyone. There's a particular challenge for those who are never attracted to the other sex and might find it hard to imagine they'll ever get married. And that could sound unfair, but we live in a broken world and we all experience brokenness in different forms. We're all sexually broken. And I'm very grateful to God to say that the last word is not brokenness. So in the midst of brokenness, Jesus Christ has come close and God works in and through brokenness and ultimately will, will heal it. So it's not as if the Bible just says, get on with it, it's tough. There's great good news alongside the challenges that we all face as Christians of living in the midst of a broken world and fighting our own brokenness. The final word is not brokenness. And I'm going to invite the band to, to come back out. And the reality is, is, as he mentioned, we're all dealing with sexual brokenness and it shows up in different ways. But the final word is not brokenness. And there will be... Uh, limitations on our lives and there's there are going to be impacts of that brokenness in our lives that we experience today and it's going to be harder for some than others and and my heart breaks and I want to be a safe place and I want to be compassionate but we also don't want to be compromising with God's morality because we know he's inviting us into something really good and in the same way that the temple and the sacrifices in the Old Testaments were just shadows of something so much better, something so much richer, that the Son of God would come and give his life for us to be the sacrifice. Marriage and sexuality is itself just a shadow. We're told it's not going to exist in heaven because heaven is going to be the fulfillment of those, these things. And if you feel like you're missing out in this life because you don't get the marriage or the sexual fulfillment, he's saying that all of these things are just shadows pointing to a true and better reality. And that if you cling to Christ and we choose that union, that marriage with him, even at this cost, that it will result in your union with Jesus for eternity fully satisfied in every way that there will be nothing you missed out on in this life that he won't make up for. If you enjoyed the sermon, want to learn more about Jesus or get to know our community, please visit beacon.church to get connected. We would love to hear from you.